Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, before we start, I just want to take a minute to shout out the people who made it on time today. God bless you. And uh, if you didn't make it on time, then just find a friend who can encourage you in Christ. All right. All right, I'm going to pray and we'll hop into God's word. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. You're so good to us in your word and that you tell us who you are and you tell us what you like. Father, and you tell us how we can respond to you. So, Lord, as we go through difficult weeks and as we uh, try to figure out, make sense of life and try to make hard decisions and think about what life is about, God, we're so grateful that you've spoken to us so clearly in your word, Father, and we pray that you would speak to us clearly in your word once again right now. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to be impacted by your word, that your spirit uh, would work it in our hearts, God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by talking about stories. I don't think we fully realize how kind of central to our lives stories are. Some of y'all have probably already told some stories, and every single one of us is a storyteller. Some of you have probably already told some this morning. Somebody asked you, hey, how was your week? And you began to tell them stories about your week. He was like, well, Monday, I wasn't really trying to go to work, but I went anyway. Tuesday, my boss was tripping. Thursday, my kids was bad, so I had to spank them. And you began to tell them these kind of stories about your week. It's how we make sense of life. It's how we communicate with each other. Storytelling has always been really central to the lives of human beings and how we communicate with each other. I personally love a really good story, whether that's something I'm watching in a movie or a TV show or a podcast or reading a book. I really love a really good story. But aside from stories like that, and even aside from kind of the little small stories that we tell to one another about our days or about our weeks, I wonder what your story is. Not just the story of your week or your day, but the story of your entire life. Your life story. If someone was to ask you about your life story, what would you tell them? What do you say to people when they try to get to know you, aside from what it is that you do for work, aside from where it is that you came from? What is your personal story? The text that we're going to look at today is going to tell us quite a bit about your story and my story and all of our stories. And some of you may say, hey, Tripp, you don't know me that well. Tripp, I don't know you at all. How are you going to tell me something about my story? Well, I think the text that we see today, the text that we're going to look at, is going to tell us very clearly. Because though we all come from different backgrounds and very unique, have unique journeys, those of us in this room who are believers in Jesus, we have essentially the exact same story. And that story is this, that we were dead in our sins, but we were saved by grace in order to do good works. Ask any Christian about their stories, and those should be main bullet points of those stories. I, I love a good story. My favorite story is to hear the story about how a Christian was dead in their sins, but was saved by grace in order to do good works. All stories are the same. For example, Pastor John grew up in the church and thought he was a Christian, assumed he was a Christian, but it wasn't until he had a crazy near-death experience in Nigeria. Feel free to ask him about this after the service that he was shaken about his sin and trusted in Jesus. Or my wife, she grew up in a Christian home where she heard the gospel all the time. And she doesn't actually even know the exact moment when she was saved, but she does know she was dead in her sins and she believes in Jesus right now. 
Or our brother Rico, he was just telling me about his testimony the other day, how he, he had a friend who kept sharing the gospel with him, and he, he didn't really want to hear the gospel, and then he, his friend brought him around Christian friends, and God opened his eyes to see his sin, and he trusted him. And I have this one, the craziest, one of the craziest testimonies I heard is a friend of mine, he was a drug dealer, he got like shot and hit by a car, and then he like stumbled and fell in front of some lady's house, and she took him to the hospital, and then somebody shared the gospel with him, and he got saved. Crazy. But no matter how crazy our stories are, how different our stories are, we have essentially the exact same story. We were dead in our sins. Jesus raised us by his grace for good works. That's even how we could think about the question, what is a Christian? So someone asks you, what is a Christian? One answer you could give is... Someone who's dead in their sins, but was saved by grace in order to do good works. I wonder if that's how you think of yourself this morning. We're going to think through that common story this morning in Ephesians 2. So why don't you turn there with me, Ephesians 2. And as we think about that common story, I want you to think very closely about your life. Because here's why this is important. Understanding your story has a huge impact on how you understand yourself. Right. I mean, people are defined by the city that they came from. Somebody, somebody say, sure, why do you pronounce your words like that? I'm like, I'm from Dallas and I just talk kind of weird. Somebody may say, hey, Trip, why do you do this or that? And so much of it has to do with our upbringing, our stories, the things that we've been through. And if we're going to understand ourselves, if we're going to understand how we're supposed to live in this world, if we're going to make sense of everything, we have to accurately understand where we came from. It's huge to understanding our identity. So let's look in Ephesians 2. And if you remember in, in Ephesians 1, Paul, he greeted them. He told them about all these spiritual blessings that he that were available to us in Jesus that are theirs even now in Christ. And then last week, as we looked, Paul thanked God for them and he prayed for them the things that he was praying God would do in their lives. And now here in chapter two, he's going to begin to tell them about themselves. Let's read Ephesians chapter two, starting at verse one. This is what God's word says. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's God's word and it's our story. And since we're going to be talking about our common stories, we're going to walk through this text in scene. In little seasons of our life. So scene one is the funeral. Scene one is the funeral that we see in verses one to three. Stories 
usually don't begin with funerals. That's not usually how a life story begins. It's usually how we think of life stories ending. But this is how our common story begins. Because from the moment we're born, death is a very huge part of our story. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know that funerals are never easy to attend. And the reason it's hard and painful to attend a funeral is because death is very unnatural. Anybody who's lost a loved one, and I know there are people in this room, I see people who've lost loved ones, you know that death just feels wrong. We just have this innate sense in us that this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Death isn't supposed to happen. And the kind of spiritual death that Paul talks about is likewise wrong and unnatural and not the way it's supposed to be. And it, too, is a cause for mourning. Let's look at verse 1 again. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He speaks to them very plainly about their past because he doesn't for a minute want them to be deceived about who they were. He wants them to know the seriousness of the condition they were in. That they weren't just a little confused in their sins. They weren't just a little sick in their sins. They were dead in their sins. And when he says dead, he used the word dead on purpose. And he's talking to us as well. We were dead in our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we were never incapable of doing anything good. It just means we were incapable of doing anything in connection to God or anything that pleases God. So think for a moment about physical death and what that means. That means you have no life. That means you can't respond. That means you can't interact. It means you lose connection with your loved ones. So when we begin to talk about spiritual death, we mean there's no spiritual life. We mean you can't respond to God. We mean you can't please God. We mean we have no connection with God. That we are utterly and completely separated from God because of our sin. Because of Adam. We were born in sin and we continually choose from the moment we're born, from the moment that we can make choices, to continue to sin. And that's that's heavy, right? Scripture uses a lot of words to talk about our relationship to sin as we're born. It says we're dead in sin. It says we're blind in sin. It says we're deaf in sin. It even says we're enslaved to sin. Now, do you notice that all these descriptions of our relationship to sin leave us utterly helpless and inflicted by it and held down by it? But that's not how we often think of sin. Now, sometimes we imagine that sin is like that crazy friend of ours or like, that crazy friend that you know is going to do something crazy so you probably wouldn't, shouldn't hang with. Or that crazy friend growing up that your parents told you to watch out for. Like, man, I know I should probably stay away from them because I know they get a little crazy, but I like them. That's my friend. Right? That's how we think of sin. But sin is less like a bad kid or that crazy friend in college. And sin is more like a slaveholder or a torturer or a serial killer. Because sin doesn't make friends. Sin takes captives. Sin takes captives. It doesn't take a little. It wants it all. It wants our souls separated from God. And Paul makes clear that that's exactly where we were. We cannot think about our past when we felt so free and we were bound by sin. in some free moment that we had in our life. That was the moment when we were enslaved and held under the tyranny of a torturer. Scripture says we were dead in sin. And that means that we are... Worse off than the world assumes. You know, our world assumes that we're basically good, and depending on the situations we end up in, it could either go good or bad. Let's give you another analogy for that. 
uh, me and a friend of mine, Biz, we were both given the exact same pair of shoes by the same person. Is that people usually think of people? They were nice shoes. We both liked them. After a month, mine looked pristine because I appreciate the masterpiece of a well-crafted shoe. My friend Biz, on the other hand, after a month, his shoes looked like he went to war in them. The leather was scratched. The suede was stained. The toe, the toe looked like he had just crouched like this for a month consistently. Or like he just drove in his car and just let his foot drag out the door. Those shoes were in bad shape. And it's not because the shoes were poorly made. It's because they went through some things, right? They were put in a rough situation. That's how people think of human beings. Like, yeah, basically good, pretty neutral. It just depends on whose hands you put them in, who raised them. It just depends on the neighborhood they're in. It just depends on the way that they're brought up. But that is not how Scripture talks about us. Like, we're basically good or we're neutral, and it just depends. Instead, Scripture talks about people more like we are a beautifully made but defective phone. Like, it looks okay, but since it's defective, it is definitely going to mess up. It's not like it depends on whose hands it's in. This phone is beautifully made. It does have worth and value, but it's defective and it will absolutely mess up in the life of sinners like us. Sin is not a possibility, but an absolute guarantee because we're dead in sin. Physically dead people decompose and stink and spiritually dead people sin and sin and sin. Dead in our sin. Parents, this is one reason why you shouldn't be surprised when your kid sins. You don't have to teach kids to lie and to be disobedient. It's just in them. I remember the first time my son lied to me, I was appalled. I was like, where did you get that? I didn't teach you that. It's like, baby, did you teach him that? Or, you know, sometimes putting him to bed, it's like, hey, cute, you need to be quiet. Your sister's right there. You need to be quiet. And he's just looking at me, smiling. It's like, this is not funny. It's like, <laughs> that is sin. Right. Parents, we shouldn't be surprised when our kids sin. It's in us, you know. And if we don't understand that as we parent, then that's going to switch our parenting altogether. If we assume our kids are just basically great and good and just depends on putting them in a good situation, we're going to approach and parent them differently than if we understand there is by nature a corruption there that shows up in all of us. And so that as we parent them, we think about those hearts and think about what God does about sinful hearts and we know what to share with them. Because through Adam, sin came into the world, and as a result, we're all born dead in our sins. Let's continue on in this passage. There's so much in this passage, I could have spent the whole time there. But I'll continue reading. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. So in verse 2, he's going to give us a little more detail about what that sin looked like in our lives that we walked in. And he's saying we were followers. Followers of who? The ways of this world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So let, let's talk about that. If he's saying you used to follow people, let's talk about that. When he says world, he doesn't just mean the earth, all the people in the world. He really means this evil age, this world system that rebels against God. You know, some people, when they talk about stuff being worldly, they think like, man, I saw... Jay-Z with them jeans on. That's worldly, bro. You shouldn't wear those. Or, man, I, I hear worldly people listen to music with that kind of beat. This is not what Scripture is talking about when it means worldly. It means this world and rebellion to God. So the ways of the world is not looking culturally like people who also sin. 
Worldliness or following the ways of this world is following in those rebellious ways, the way that they rebel against God. He also talks about the rule of the kingdom of the air that we follow. Who is that ruler of the kingdom of the air? He says it right there in that next phrase, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That spirit who works in disobedient people is none other than Satan himself, which is eerie and frightening to hear. Because we know that Satan is the adversary of God and that he has real influence in our world. And he has followers who he leads to rebel against God. And even more scary, it says that the spirit works in those who are disobedient. We're sometimes talking about God working in people like, man, God is working in you, brother. God has done this in your life. It is frightening to think of the reality of Satan working in somebody. But Satan... Apart from Christ, works in all of us, not leading us to do seances or weird stuff with Ouija boards, but leading us to rebel against God. There is nothing more satanic and Satan-like and under Satan's influence than just plain old rebellion against God. The devil takes delight in our disobedience to God, and all of us have been there. I wonder how much you think about Satan when you think about sin. This week, we saw sin at some of its most heinous and ugly with that attack on that church in Charleston. I'm assuming we've all heard of this. On Wednesday night, a young man enters into this church, in this historically black church where they're having a a Bible study and, and prayer. And he goes into that building and he sits in their Bible study for an entire hour listening to people Pray together and encourage each other and bear one another's burdens and and share their cares and and be compassionate with each other. And after sitting there for an hour, as far as we know from what people saying, he stood up and he began to open fire on those very people whose eyes he looked into just a moment ago. And he killed nine people and another one was injured. And our entire nation is just kind of collectively shook by this. I mean, even to the point of the the racist things that he said as he was doing it, everyone is shook. And as I heard that, and as I studied this week, I could not help but think, sometimes evil seems clearly demonic because it is. I mean, you've seen even non-religious people this week say, man, that seems satanic. That's especially evil. That's especially heinous. What gets into a person? Well, sometimes sin seems obviously satanic because it is. Sometimes sin sin seems clearly demonic because it is. Satan does work and influence. And horrific evils like this make it clear to us. And we should mourn with them and we should pray for them. And we should call that evil what it is. Now, those of us in this room have not committed a heinous act quite like that, such terrible acts. But it's not only murder that's satanic and evil in Scripture. All sin is. Our pride is Satan-like in the way that we seek to elevate ourselves above God in our mind. And our lust is, is satanic in the way that we look at somebody who's been created in the image of God. And we tear them down into some 3D image for us to gawk at and to lust after. That's satanic. And our impatience and unforgiveness with each other 
It's satanic in the way that we seek to pull away the gospel that God offers to them. All sin and rebellion against God is satanic and it's clear in a text like this. Sin is really ugly and we shouldn't think of it any other way. Sin is ugly. Verse 3, Paul says, As all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature, deserving of wrath. So he goes from talking about the world, the ways of the world and the devil. Then they're talking about our own flesh. And the way flesh is used here doesn't just mean like our physical flesh, our skin. It means our, our sinful natures. And he's saying we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh as we sin. So as we follow the ways of this world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, we're doing exactly what our sinful hearts want to do. There would be no inf- nothing influential about the world and Satan if our hearts were right, if our flesh wasn't a problem. The works of the world and of Satan are really like gasoline. There's already a sin fire burning on in our souls, and all the world and the fle- uh, and all the world and Satan do is pour some gasoline on that. They give it an opportunity to burn brightly. The world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against God and against us, so that we submit to them and not God. And any understanding of your sin or anybody else's sin that doesn't include the world, the flesh, and the devil is insufficient. And it's dangerous because we won't know who it is that we're supposed to be fighting. It's not just the world out there. It's not just the devil out there. It's also your own sinful flesh. We have to keep that in mind. So we're dead in sin. And we're following the ways of the world and the flesh and the devil. What does God think about that? You know, what does God do about our darkness and our rebellion and our alienation. And the result is right there in that text. We were deserving of God's wrath. Do you know that we deserved God's wrath? His anger at sin, his fury at the ways that we've rebelled against him. And then it was justified and righteous of him to be angry about our sin. Because even though sometimes we think, man, I never did any big sins like what we even thought about this week. But there's no such thing as a small sin against such a great God. He takes offense to it. He takes it very personally because, not because we're just breaking rules, but because we're sinning against him. The text says we were deserving of wrath. And if we don't understand that, then we will never be able to see the sweetness of the salvation that God has given us. Right? A man who doesn't even know he's in prison isn't going to rejoice when he gets bailed out. He's just going about life as it was going. But we deserve wrath and God delivered us. We cannot understand our story without understanding this part of our story. You ever seen someone famous and people say, man, he forgot where he came from. He thinks he's a man. And it gives them a kind of pride and looking down on people. Well, as Christians, if we don't understand this part of our story, if we forget where we came from, so to speak, then it is going to lead to pridefulness. All of us were dead, and this should humble us. And it should make us not look down on people, but be compassionate, understanding there's real spiritual death there, and there's real torture there from, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. My question for you is, physical death does make us mourn, but does the spiritual death of others make you mourn? When you see somebody apart from Christ, do you mourn at that spiritual death, and do you long for Jesus to save them? We, we absolutely should. We absolutely should. That's scene one, the funeral. Scene two is the rebirth. Scene two is the rebirth. 
This second scene is, is the part in the story where everything shifts dramatically. It's that twist that no one is expecting. It's that suspenseful scene in the movie that, that all the critics would write about, and it's kind of unreal and it's hard to believe. It's that part where God raises dead men from the grave. When someone hears the term born-again Christian, they often think something that doesn't have anything to do with what Scripture means by born-again. They think maybe super conservative politically or maybe hypocritical or maybe just a super-duper committed Christian. But that's not a, a true picture because either you're a born-again Christian or you're not a Christian. Born-again doesn't refer to a particular kind of Christian. It's the definition of a Christian. A Christian is someone who was dead in their sin, but has been raised by God in order to do good works. And if you haven't been born again, then you remain dead in your sins. We were born dead, so we have to be born again. So after saying so much about the horrible state that we're in, Paul now is going to talk about what happened to change that. What was the turn of events? And most translations here at verse 4 Begin with the two words, but God. Now here in our text, it says, but because of his great love, God. There's still that contraction, but in the subject, God. And we know how the English language works. Contraction like but contrasts with whatever was before it. It contradicts whatever was before it. So that there's a big shift here. You notice he doesn't say you were dead in your sins, but you guys got your act together. And he doesn't say, you deserve wrath, but then your mama took you to church. Right? He makes it clear that it was God's characters and it was God's actions that made the difference, not ours. It's not you were dead in your sin, but you. It's you were dead in your sin, but God. So we all have these unique particulars to our story, but at this part, the exact same things happen. So I don't know what kind of sins and transgressions you walked in and you lived in, but I know the exact same result happens when that but God shows up. So it may be I used to sleep around a lot, but God, and it's a race. It may used to be, man, I was absolutely irresponsible and I wrecked every relationship. Well, but God, and that's over. And maybe I did some terrible things that you could never imagine and I still bear the consequences it still says in the text. But God, and that erases whatever happened there. Those two words take care of it. No matter what you put at the front of the sentence. I'm going to read again, starting at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Me and John had an argument if that word is incomparable or incomparable. Incomparable sounds strange, so I'm saying incomparable. I don't care if it's wrong. I'm a rapper. Rappers don't speak right anyway. All right. Let, let's talk about God's action here in this text. The question we can ask, what can a dead man do for himself? What plans can a dead man make? What phone calls can a dead man respond to? The answer is none. He has to be raised, and that's what God did. So if you look at our actions in the text and God's actions, our actions, we rebelled, we followed, we strayed, and God made us alive. He saved us. He raised us with him. He seated us with Christ. God is really active in this. One on story in the Gospels is the story of Lazarus. So Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, and they say, hey, Jesus, our brother is sick, and, and uh, uh, they ask Jesus to do something about it. 
And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. It seems absolutely hopeless. He already stinks. Yet, Jesus speaks with his words and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you say the name Lazarus, a lot of people are familiar with it. But the story of Lazarus, Lazarus is noteworthy not because of what he did, but because what was done to him. He didn't play a role in his resurrection. That brother was dead. He wasn't doing anything except being dead. And Jesus is, of course, the one who initiates. Jesus is the one who does something. He's active. Lazarus is passive until he raises. And we're passive. We're dead until God actively raises us. It's God's initiative. What does that mean, though, to be made alive spiritually? Well, spiritual death means you're alienated from God. You can't connect with God. You can't please God. Spiritual life means those things are removed. It means you're connected to the giver of life. It means we can connect with him and have a relationship with him. It means we can hear from him. It means we can respond in faith and obedience. It means we now have the capacity for true joy. We're free from the bondage of chasing after stuff that's never going to give us real joy. Do you know what kind of freedom it is for God to say, you're looking at false things, look over at me? We don't have eyes to see that until God raises us from the dead. When we're spiritually dead, we're living while actually walking around dead. But when we have spiritual life, we get to experience life the way it was made to be lived. In little bits, we get pictures of this abundant life. In little bits, we get little bits of forgiveness. And God makes us more like him. And and everything starts to be better. And if you know Christ, then true life and freedom is yours right now. That is great news for believers. You notice Paul says... God did it even while we were dead in transgressions. We didn't initiate this. We were still dead. And that's why he chimes in with, it is by grace you have been saved. Right? Because God did it. He raised us. And the text says we're raised with Christ. We don't raise by ourselves. It's not a a solo resurrection. We're raised with Christ. It's like we're holding on to him. And wherever Jesus is, that's where we are. Whatever Jesus gets, that's what we get. So we get his inheritance. Right. And we get his standing in heaven forever. Right. And we get to be with him. He even says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Look at Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. I'm going to read this. It says it talks about that power. It says he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age and also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and it goes on and on. And here in this text, Paul says, well, since you've trusted in Christ and you were raised to life with Christ, you're now seated exactly where Jesus is. This is how salvation works. Jesus got what we deserved on the cross, and we get what Jesus deserved because of his perfect life. Jesus is seated in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God with power and authority, even over some of these powers that used to have us in bondage, and God has seated us in that exact same place. Now, we're not the son of God, right? We're not coming back to reign over all things in the way that Jesus is, but we're seated right where he is. We should not underestimate the power of our union with Jesus. He doesn't just say you're beside Christ. He says you're with Christ. He doesn't just say you're friends with Christ. He says you're in Christ. What kind of closer connection could we ever have that we abide in him and he abides in us? I need to stick to my manuscript here because I'm going to keep going all day. There's good stuff in this text. 
But somebody might say then, okay, well, why would God even do that then? If he hates sin and we deserve wrath, why would God raise us from the dead? Why would God give these dead rebels new life? And it has everything to do with God and his character. And it's very clear in the passage. Verse 4, it says, because of his great love for us. God deeply loves us, and he makes it abundantly clear, and that's why he did what he did. On Father's Day, when we begin to talk about the love of a father, as John said, there's so many mixed emotions for us. Some of us, our fathers were never around, and they never showed us any love. They never did anything with their actions that seemed very loving. So it's hard for us to think of God the Father as loving. There are others of us who our dads actually did love us. They showed their love with their actions, but they never expressed it with their words. I was listening to a podcast uh, with a lot of different people talking about their fathers, and they were all saying, yeah, my dad, I know he loved me, he worked hard, he did all this stuff, but he just never quite said it with his words. He wasn't that type of guy. And I think I'd kind of be in that category. It was very clear my dad loved me, no question at all, from all of his actions and everything he did. He just wasn't, he didn't express his affections and emotions like that in that way. Well, here's the thing about God, the Father. For those of us who trust in Jesus, and God is our Father, He is, in every single way, greater than our earthly Father, so that He loves us incredibly, both with His actions and His words. So He does love us with a great love and show it with His actions. He's not a deadbeat dad. He's not an absent dad. He's a very present dad. But not only that, He also gushes over us. He tells us how much He loves us. He declares it for all the universe to see and hear. It's a love like we've never experienced before. I'm so glad that I'm loved by that God and that Father this morning. And it also says that He's rich in mercy in verse 4. Verse 7, it says, in order that in the coming ages, this is why he did it, so he can show the incomparable riches of his grace. So he's rich in mercy, he's rich in grace, and he did this not only because his character is great, but because he wants to show that off. He wants to show off his riches and mercy and grace. Do you know there are two kinds of rich people? There are rich people who are very humble about it. You never really know. You know, like, dude, you, he's like, yeah, man, he's a billionaire. He owns a sports team. You're like, word? So I'm looking at his outfit like, word? <laughs> now, you can't really tell that we're humble about it. And then there are people who are real flashy about it. This would be every rapper who's ever made $5, right? <laughs> they buy the most expensive car they can. They have every chain on that they've ever seen because they want to make sure you know I am very rich now. I want you to know I'm flashy with it. Why don't you know that God is like that second kind of rich person? God is rich in grace, and he's rich in mercy, and he does not want to keep it to himself. He wants it to be made known and clear to the world, I am rich in grace and mercy. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to be flashy about my riches in grace and mercy. And the way he stunts and the way he flexes is by raising dead men from the grave. So rich dudes buy Bentleys like, look how rich I am. And God raises dead men from the grave like, look how gracious I am. God loves to be flashy with his goodness and his character. And I'm glad that he's flashy with it because it is a beautiful sight. It is never wrong for God to draw attention to himself because it always serves the one whose attention he gets. Right? It's good for God to draw attention because we're not looking at him. We're looking at false gods. I'm glad God showed off his grace and mercy and it drew me to him. That's good news. That's good news. Now, I know that there may be people here today who then don't know Jesus. They don't know this guy that I'm talking about. And one of my questions for you today, 
I'm really glad you're here because this is an amazing God. And my prayer is that you would know him. And one of my questions is, who loves you like this? Who is there in your life that loves you with this great love? Who is there who's rich, abundantly rich, incomparably rich in grace and mercy like God? Who is it that would go to such great lengths to have you? There is no one who loves like God. And if you don't know Jesus, then you're still stuck in scene one. That death in our sins, that funeral. But if you would trust Christ, then you can be here with us in the rebirth. Right? You can be free from that bondage. You can be given new life. The death of Jesus cancels out our death and sins. And I would plead with you today to trust in this Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, all these sins and transgressions we used to walk in and live in, Jesus paid the price for them. Yes, we deserved wrath. Yes, we deserved judgment. God was rightly angry at us for our sin, but Jesus stood in our place. He took the punishment for us. And if you would trust in this Jesus, that punishment is off your plate. This but God can be part of your story. I plead with you today, even right now, trust in this Jesus. We've talked about the funeral and we've talked about the rebirth. And finally, I want to talk about the reason. Scene three, the reason. And this, this final scene is really kind of the director's commentary. It's almost like DVDs. You used to buy a DVD and you could watch the director's cut. He was like, why is he talking over the movie? This is like that. What God, the director, is telling us not only what he did, but he's telling us how he did it and why he did it. So you know, like, yeah, I did this shot this way because blah, blah, blah. I know like three people cared about that. But God here, I mean, this is really important. Our story, God is saying, hey, here's how I did it and here's why I did it. Let's read verses 8 to 10. God says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So remember, a Christian is someone who was dead in sin, but saved by grace. Why? In order to do good works. So often, people have a very strange assumption about how we can be saved and unite with God. Our assumption is that when we're saved, it's because we do good things. And if we're good enough, then God will say, man, that person sure is good. I want to bring them in. Or that God will say, man, they're not that good, but they tried really hard. Let, let me let them in. They, they have a good heart, which this text has already told us we don't. But that's our assumption about the way that God saves. But Paul makes clear that's not the case. Because if we're to be saved, it is going to be by grace. If you use the word grace a lot, what is grace? If I could describe, describe grace in one word, it would be charity. Grace is charity. The word, English word charity comes from the Greek word for, for grace here. Grace is a free gift. So we, we know what charity is. Charity is when we see somebody in need, and from what we have, we give it freely to them. They don't do anything to earn it, right? They, didn't, uh, they don't have anything to offer us. We just say, free gift to bless you. That's what grace is. Grace is when God sees us in great need. We haven't earned anything. We don't deserve that from him. In fact, as we say in this passage, we deserve wrath, but God freely gives. That's how God saves. He doesn't look and say, man, look how good you are. He says, man, I see how bad you are and how much you need me to save you. So I'm going to give you this free gift of grace. In our jobs, we function on rewards and wages, right? 
you work hard and you get paid. If you didn't show up, you're not going to get paid. Right. Or rewards. Right. You did something good. Therefore, you get this. And while God values that kind of hard work and earning money in our jobs, that's not how it works with salvations. When it comes to salvations, God is all about charity and free handouts. He gives us what we haven't earned. God is a God of free handouts when it comes to salvation. But it's also through faith, meaning faith is the means that he saves us through. That's how we receive this grace. Faith is what happens when we get eyes to see and we see Jesus and we trust in him and say, man, he is the beautiful savior that God said that he was. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I'm going to cling to the savior. I'm going to trust in the savior. I'm going to follow the savior. And salvation is by grace through that faith in Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you can believe in him right now and all these blessings can be yours. I mean, look at chapter one. That's a long paragraph of spiritual blessings that are ours right now. That isn't even the entire picture. All of that can be yours right now if you would trust in Jesus. Trust in him. The, the Reformation and Big movements of Christianity have been fought over this question, how are we saved, when some have said we're saved by the stuff that we do. And there could not be a clearer passage than this that says very clearly it is not by works. It's not based on what you do. And don't we still go back to that sometimes? Well, if I haven't prayed enough in a week, I'm like, man, I don't think God likes me anymore. Like, I got to earn my way to kind of stay in this. I want to encourage you this week. Not to do that. Remember, you were saved by grace through faith and not by your works. You didn't get there by your works. You're not going to stay there by your works. You're going to stay there by that same grace and faith. That's, that's how God works. So as we think about that, some people, that seems unfair. They'd be like, man, how is it so easy? Somebody may say, is salvation free then? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Salvation is free of charge, but it's not free of cost. Salvation for us is free of charge, but not free of cost. It's free in the sense that we don't have to pay to receive it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do good works to get it. But it's not free in the sense that it costs Jesus everything, his very life. And it's, it's very costly for him. And it's also cost, costly in the sense that even though we don't pay to receive it, it does cost us something once we have it. It does cost us sacrifice. It does cost us picking up our cross and following Jesus. So, yes, it's free of charge, but it's not free of cost. It's a very good salvation that God has given us. Paul has made clear through the whole text. It's not works. It's not works. It's by grace you've been saved. It's God who's, who's merciful and rich. So you may say, what role do those good works play? And he makes it clear here in the last verse. With God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were remade by God, new creations. Why? To do good works. Not saved by good works, but for good works. And he makes it really clear, it can't be because of your works. It's not like God looked ahead and saw your works, and that's why he saves you, because he's the one who prepared them in advance in the first place. Right? It's almost like if I laid some goldfish out for my son in a line. He's like, Dad, I know you love me because I made it. It's like, I put it there for you. Right? That's not the reason that I love you. I put it there for you because I love you. And so don't get scared by this and like, man, which good works did God prepare for me? Look around the good works you see right in front of you that you can do. Those are the ones that God prepared for you in advance. I'll help you out in that way. When you see an opportunity to love somebody, to serve somebody, those are the good works God has put before you. Who are you doing good works to? I want you to think about your past week. If God saved you 
four good works. What did that look like in your life last week? Who are you doing good to in your family? Who are you doing good to in your neighborhood? God saved you for good works of love and of service and of godliness. And I'd encourage you to throw your life into that because that's what you've been given life for. Right? And God says he did it this way so that no one can boast. So that even those good works show up, it's not your boasting, it's God's. God wants to make clear in any and everything, I'm the big picture. So here's the thing about all of our common stories is the funeral and there's a rebirth and God has just given us the reason. But in all of that, God makes really clear that he's the main thing. He, he's the big picture. Not only is he the author, not only is he the director, but he's also the main character. And we play supporting roles and all of that story is there to point to him. So I pray that that's something that we can find unity in as a young church and a church that's forming. We have the same story. We're dead in sins. We are raised to life by the grace of Jesus in order to do good works that would glorify that same Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name once again. Thanking you for salvation by grace through faith. God, and we pray that this week we would walk in that. You've prepared good works for us, Father. We were in bondage, but now we're free. Let that show up in the way that we interact with people. Let that show up in what we do when nobody else is looking, Father. Help us to walk in the freedom you've purchased for us and to praise you for the salvation you've freely given. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.